you are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is our review of The Five Bloods. Black GI, is it fair to serve more than the white Americans that sent you here? Nothing is more confused than to be ordered into a war to die without the faintest idea of what's going on. I dedicate this next record to the Soul Brothers of the 1st Infantry Divisions. Be safe. Welcome back to Vietnam. Look what I found. You're the man in all his glory. Who was that guy? That brother was the best damn soldier that ever lived. We bury it. Made our own, we come back and collect. I shall resign the presidency. Being back here, it is not easy. So what, you blaming yourself? You don't even know. No! been dying for this country from the very get now the time is there are things to real we give this call to our people hold up in my line of work i have to be very careful and that means knowing exactly who I am in business with. All right, everybody, you were just listening to the trailer for The Five Bloods, and the story is as follows. Four African-American vets battle the forces of man and nature when they return to Vietnam, seeking the remains of their fallen squad leader and the gold fortune he helped them hide. The film is starring Delroy Lindo, Jonathan Majors, Clark Peters, Norm Lewis, Isaiah Whitlock Jr., Melanie Thierry, Paul Walter Hauser, Jasper Pakonin, John Renault, and Chadwick Boseman. It is written and directed by Spike Lee, co-written by Danny Bilson, Paul DeMeo, and Kevin Wilmot. Joining me for this podcast review, I have Josh Parham. Hello, hello. Dan Baer. Let's do this. Tom O'Brien. Oh boy, oh boy. And also joining us as a guest here on the podcast. You may have heard me on their show out now with Aaron and Abe. He is from We Live Entertainment. Everyone, please join me in welcoming Aaron Newworth to the Next Best Picture podcast. Boom shakalaka. <laughs> All right, everybody. So Defy Blood, Spike Lee's follow up to his Oscar winning film Black Klansman. Lots of anticipation for this one. It came directly to Netflix here just a few days ago, and it is a movie that for all intents and purposes, uh, good or bad, um, it just has the perfect timing right now, given everything that's going on in the world at the moment. And there's kind of this incredible symmetry, I guess you could say, to uh, just the timing of the release of this movie. And it obviously not planned, but 
It's the movie that I think everybody needs right now, and everybody can watch it from home at Netflix, which is just a glorious thing uh, currently at the moment. So lots of anticipation for this one, lots of thoughts going around. I want to get into it with everybody here because this is a whole lot of movie to get into, two and a half hours worth. Let's first start off with our guest here, Aaron, initial impressions of To Five Bloods. I um to to establish some context. I'm a big Spike Lee fan. Um, I even his lesser films I find to be pretty interesting just because he doesn't tend to phone it in. And so coming into this one where Black Klansman was my favorite film of 2018 and one of my favorite films of the decade, I was ready for Spike Lee to you know impress me again. And I was very impressed. He has not backed down. Um, he, he is taking the kind of goodwill he received from his previous film, a large budget given to him by, or a lar- for a Spike Lee film, a large budget given to him by Netflix to make one of his most ambitious movies that takes him out of New York and into something pretty impressive uh, from a scope level and delivers completely. I think whatever he's been doing for the past few films, I think Chirac and Black Landsman and now this with uh, with a co-writer Kevin Wilmot, I think he it just some kind of special sauce seems to be working there because I thought the film uh, was pretty great all around. I think it works as into like a number of different genres, uh, being a, a war film, a drama, a, 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 something dealing with kind of crisis involving the Viet, you know, the Vietnam War and these soldiers. Uh, there's there's a lot of things at play here. There's a lot of movie here, uh, but you have what I think is a pretty sound script, a good set of actors with some great performances. That I'm sure we'll talk about. Doer Lindo in particular really stands out. Um, yeah, no, just top to bottom, I was I was a big fan of this film. I think I was it was it was really good. Awesome, really cool. Uh, let's hear now from Tom O'Brien. Um, I I also like this very very much. I've heard some people say that the film is all over the place, and I can see that point of view. What Spike Lee film isn't? <laughs> yeah, but one critic uh, called it sprawling, and I love that word because mm-hmm. it really is. It covers so many so many different genres. It's a father-son story. It's a political commentary. It's a treasure hunt. It's a caper movie. It's all kinds of stuff going on in in this film. It has heft. It really does. In uh, I think sometimes Spike Lee's movies are best when they're contained, do the right thing in the same neighborhood. Uh, Black Klansman, you know, it's a, it's it's kind of all contained there. This is the the vista here is really wide, and um, uh, happily he has some some remarkable actors and uh, a very very solid script. I gotta say, just as a personal note, um, Paul DeMeo, whose original script this is based on, was when I first moved to L.A. my next door neighbor. Oh wow, and, that's cool. Oh wow, and he and his family. Or just wonderful. And when he passed a couple of years ago, uh, it was just so sad because um, he had so much more to give. So here's to you, Paul. Very nice. Awesome. Dan Bear. I liked it. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's it? That's all we're going to get right now? <laughs> Thanks, Dan. I- <laughs> I know, right? This is my my big critical breakthrough. I liked the, the Five Bloods. It was fine. Um uh no, it I there there was something missing or, or 
something that didn't quite work about it that kept me from loving it completely, but I was completely engaged and into it the whole time. I never felt it, you know, dragging through its two and a half hours. Um, the, the actors are all unsurprisingly incredible. Um, I think what does it for me is like, there's this, the first half of it or so is full of a lot, (laughs) a lot Mm -hmm. of, style a lot of directorial flourishes and then at some point that just all completely disappears and it becomes much more straightforward in style and i i kind of missed that go for broke spike spike leanness of it um but when it makes that shift it also kind of turns into it turns into itself and becomes more about the characters and their relationship dynamics as opposed to the um history and stuff of it all so i think it's like a little unbalanced as a movie but i i still liked it okay Okay, we're going to expand upon that, yeah. I think, in a little bit here with some details and some scenes and such, uh, because I I do see what it is that you're saying. I Make no mistake about it, uh, Spike Lee is an ambitious filmmaker, and a lot of times I do think that his movies could be a little bit more focused and contained. Um, I like that Tom mentioned uh, sprawling before, but sometimes yeah. when you go that route, um, there can be uh, maybe like a lack of focus and tonal shifts and... Uh, things just seem all over the place, especially when you are working with a two and a half hour runtime. But we'll we'll get into that um, because I too share some similar sentiments there. So, Josh Parham, it's your review up on the website. Let's hear from you. What do you think of Defy Bloods? Well, I first of all want to say that I am also a huge fan of Spike Lee, and I think that he is a filmmaker that really we should all celebrate whenever he makes another movie because I think he is somebody that. <laughs> is working with very interesting themes that are relevant today. And even when they aren't totally successful, he is saying things that even some of the best filmmakers working on a technical level don't even approach. I think that he is an incredible storyteller and we should always celebrate when we have a new Spike Lee film. Agreed. Yeah. And I think that the five bloods is a very typical Spike Lee movie where it is very ambitious. It is sprawling It's kind of messy and disorganized, and sometimes that does frustrate me a bit while I'm watching it. Um, But at the same time, there is something at the center that has a very powerful message to it. Um, That is about the history of sort of American interference with different cultures and how it sort of poisons you and, and poisons these communities. But at the same time, also trying to find excellence to strive for and finding your own kind of independence out of this damaged past. And I found all that very fascinating and it's helmed by these very wonderful performances, especially Del Rolando, which I think we are all going to be on the same page with. And, you know, it's, it's a movie that does not have, it's not without its problems. It's very shaggy and messy at times, but I still found it to be very captivating and still worthy of attention. Yeah, I think that on a technical level, I think this is Lee's most ambitious movie probably since Malcolm X, um, just in terms of 
how much movie there is, <laughs> you know? And I think that the storytelling device here of these five black men, uh, well, technically four, and the fifth is uh, Delroy Lindo's uh, son, uh, played by Jonathan Majors. Um, they're going back to Vietnam, revisiting um, old memories, painful memories, especially for uh, Delroy Lindo's character, Paul. And they're going back uh, for two reasons. Uh, one is for uh, to bring back the remains of their fallen squad leader, Norman, or Storman Norman, as he's called in the movie, uh, played by Chadwick Boseman in flashbacks. And they're also uh, going to collect uh, this gold that they buried and left behind as well. Uh, millions and millions of dollars that they will uh, hopefully all come back with. And I think the thing that, Josh, I like what you said there before about uh, American history and its exploitation of uh, other cultures uh, for their own personal gain. Because one thing that this movie, um, when w- one thing that I walked away with from this movie is the message from Spike that not only did the war never end for these men, the Vietnam War, but the war for racial equality for these men and also for all of uh, black people across um, it, I'm not even going to say America in this case, uh, but, you know, tying into what's happening right now, um, it's all over the world. That war has also not ended. And there is this extremely, extremely profound and impactful feeling uh, that I, I hope arrives to people while they are watching Defy Bloods. I know I felt it. And there are so many different ways that Spike conveys it. Um, not just through characters, but also um, through the music, um, the, the 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 Vietnamese like radio station, uh, the the flashbacks, the documentary footage. Remember when the trailer dropped for this movie, and we all said like, mm-hmm. "Wow, that's one of the most uniquely put together trailers like we've seen in quite a long time." Well, the movie feels very much like that too at times in terms of its editing and how it splices in documentary footage from the past and trying to tell these like parallel stories of not just um, the main narrative, but also to the story of race in America itself. Like qualms aside, and I will definitely get to some qualms with the movie specifically qualms aside. I, I think this film has just as much impact and power as something like Black Klansman did two years ago. And given everything that's going on in the world right now, it's no surprise to me uh, that this movie is being wholly embraced and praised. And how how could you not? You know, how could you not, given everything that's happening right now? Well, it helps that it feels like a real movie, right? I mean, it's we're at a time Mm -hmm. where there aren't movies coming out in the theaters right now, right? We're still in, in addition to what else is going on in the world as far as racial injustice goes, there's also still a pandemic that stopped us, us for every five, uh, everybody else from going to theaters to see real movies. Uh, right. It's not to say that the streaming films are not. There's plenty of great movies that I've seen at home, but at the same time, this is a big Spike Lee movie. Even if it was going to Netflix, it's still a big Spike Lee movie. It feels appropriately big, and it has something to say. It's not just you know something some genre thing that's fun, like The Vast of Night that I really enjoyed, or you know some random horror movie. And there's been a few that I've been really enjoying. It's a big Spike Lee movie with messages on its mind, with a big cast, with you know a budget that looks impressive enough. If even if it's not you know some two hundred million dollar Marvel movie, like it, it feels like this is something like important. We should all be seeing it, but it also 
it's really entertaining. I think we're not emphasizing that enough. Like beyond the fact that it has things to say and that it has like good, like uh, lived in performances and things that speak to PTSD and what have you. It's also a fun movie to watch. Am I wrong? Did you guys have fun watching? No, I had a blast watching this, yeah, even though, and, and, and here's my first qualm. Maybe, um, you guys all know, but I love it when a movie focuses on story and character and takes its time to uh, build that, especially because it does lead to great payoff moments for those characters by the end. And while this is true about The Five Bloods, I must admit my least favorite section of the movie is the first act because it felt like it was 50 minutes or so. I finally, finally looked at like my watch and I thought to myself, when are we going to get to like actually them back in the jungles of Vietnam. You know what I mean? And I realized that there was a lot of character building going on, but I do wish that that first section had the same sense of urgency as the second and third acts do. I think that's a bit of what I was saying, how it feels a little unbalanced on the level of structure. Um, The, I didn't feel we got enough about them when they were soldiers in Vietnam, like we got just enough so that we understood what happened and where they were coming from. But I didn't get enough to really feel for them. And especially for um, the Chadwick Boseman character uh, for Storm and Norman, it just didn't, I didn't feel any sort of connection to what was happening um, and to the characters for me to for their their quest to really mean something when they say that, um, you know, he's like the best soldier that they had ever yeah, like yeah. fought alongside and so on and so forth. I, I, I kind of agree, Dan. I was kind of underwhelmed by Chadwick Boseman's not his performance, but maybe the utilization of him, because I never yeah. that never came across to me so much that he was like this elevated godlike man amongst them you know what i mean that they admired and they praised so so much um did anybody else get that feeling i disagree okay i I think if you put too much of that in for one thing it's going to be ridiculous if you put them doing like nonstop amazing things over and over again you're going to just tune out of it because like okay but i think the amount of him is just enough and I think it's a mix of the fact that it's Chadwick Boseman. He just he's a compelling screen presence. I think he really just has that. But also, there I think it's such genius casting on Spike Lee's part by having Chadwick Boseman, a man who, as I said, has this kind of you know, he has a Denzel quality. I honestly think that I think as an actor, I think he has something that just kind of draws you to the screen and looks at looking at him. But also who he is right now in Hollywood. He's Black Panther. He's the man who seems like Hollywood's symbol for black pride. And you put him in this movie as the guy that they're that the other soldiers are holding up and say and seeing as this perfect soldier. I think there is I, I think that's a that's a that's an interesting way to go with that as far as depicting someone that seems so flawless. Oh I think it's great casting for all the reasons you just said. And there's, yeah. there's okay there's minimal there's minimal time with him by design, I think, because it's it, it's less important about how much we see him just constantly doing amazing things over and over again, and more of how these guys hold him up. And it's and I I think the the well, lack and, of that I think the lack of that screen time and and the and having <laughs> having them only talk about him as this basically yeah, as you mentioned like a godlike figure like this kind of deity uh, to some extent, and he taught them civil rights like history and what have you. I think all of that. For me, it added as far as 
getting the sense that it's the, it's the version that these guys tell about this man, not necessarily mm-hmm. him specifically, but what they believe him to be. I think everything they described about him, I, I thought that added up to me. But that was the thing for me, though, like we didn't get enough time for me to appreciate him and what he did for these guys on a character level. It's there. We're not. We're not. Uh, yeah, I'm not saying that's yeah, not it's there. there, but. It's there, but it wasn't enough for me to get really emotionally invested. Like when they find his body. Oh, see now, see now, Dan. Like that scene when they get back to the wreckage site and they're looking for the gold, mm-hmm. and then it goes from them finding the gold to finding Norman. That is where the movie really started to inch its way up another notch for me, because despite the fact that the first act for me was a little shaky in terms of setup. And the character development was, you know, because obviously he's focusing on so many different characters. You have Clark Peters, you have Delroy Lindo, you have the relationship with his son, Jonathan Majors, um, these other characters as well. Um, you know, Mel- Melvin and um, uh, Mel- uh, hold- Melvin and uh, Eddie. And by the time like we got to that scene, that's when I was like, OK, like I'm really getting now that the, the, the emotional impact of the performances from everybody. It really, really started to set in. It's interesting because for me on that scene, I couldn't focus on anything other than, fuck, he's getting all these hits on his metal detector and there are landmines everywhere. Which of these guys is going to blow up? Well, (laughs) we find out later. (laughs) That leads to a really great scene when Delroy Lindo has to save his son oh my uh, god that was by putting the rope around him and getting him out of there that scene is not only the best scene in the movie yeah but it's one of the best scenes i have seen in like a movie in any recent time i thought that scene was tremendous filmmaking i mean when you think consider that that scene really starts with eddie going a little weary and crazy and starting to like that scene where he just constantly backs up from everybody until the point where, you know, and uh, no, no spoilers. So I won't say anything, but I mean, let's put it this way. The minute they gave him a monologue of him talking about his financial situation, I was like, bye bye. Uh (laughs) And I was like, Oh yeah, there we go. (laughs) And it was so obvious, but also like, it was so, so well done everything about that scene well hold on hold on i want to say one thing because i want to know what the rest of you think about this because this really bothered me actually so that scene with uh eddie played by uh norm lewis yeah i felt that that scene was over the top and a little comical because of the violence and while it does lead into this amazing scene with Delroy Lindo and Jonathan Majors right afterwards, I felt that the emotional impact and what we were supposed to be feeling from that moment was cheated tonally because of such a jarring shift now to this other scene. And it's like, well, now we have to completely forget about everything that just happened because our minds are so focused on what's happening now. And on top of that, I I don't know about you guys, but like... I guess we do got to talk about the spoilers here. I'm so sorry. But, uh, you know, missing all four of his limbs, really? Mm. Well, I think that established the stakes Uh, of what they were dealing with. You know, I I don't. But it wasn't realistic with the depiction of the violence in the moment. I think it's more so that I think Eddie feels very clearly like a red shirt (laughs) in this movie. So I agree. Yeah. Yeah. It it just sort of felt like of the four. 
he was the one that I felt like the least emotional connection to. So when he did start backing up, it did kind of feel like, okay, well now the line landmine has to blow yeah, up that uh, we've established. I, like that's our movie brain earlier. too, right? That's like the, cause that's like looking at somebody walking into a street and be like, and the angle and you're like, well, a bus is probably going to hit him or something. Like yep. it just feels like final your, your destination. Like, <laughs> it feels like I'm two steps ahead of that scene. And I, mm-hmm. I, I agree. Norm Lewis I think, I mean, I'm sure he's a fine performer. I do think, he, I know he's a theatrical performer too. I do think he's, the notches he's raising it up feel like they uh, they align more with a kind of a stagey type of performance compared to the other actors. And I don't know if that maybe is a familiarity thing as far as Clark Peters, Isaiah Whitlock Jr. and Adele Lindo go or not, but I, I do think he, him in drama mode doesn't quite work as effectively as him in like hangout more comedic mode as well as the other guys do. And I do think that reflects in how we kind of see him at the end there. Well, I think he has less, that character has much less to do in general than, well, all of the other characters in the movie. (laughs) Um, But I, I liked his performance and I did, since I had spent like the whole last act, I guess, of the movie, ever since they brought up landmines okay like which of them uh, oh now this one's gonna get the landmine oh this one's gonna get the landmine um but when he when we got to that scene and sort of backing up it was like oh, okay it's definitely gonna it's definitely gonna be him now and it, I, that just opened up the scene more for me to enjoy it i guess and appreciate what was happening um it, that that much how you know theatrical or overly staged it was that didn't really bother me all that much it wasn't so much that i'm just like like i'm saying it was just the fact that you know they cut away to him he's still alive bleeding out and he's missing both his arms and both his legs and to me i just thought to myself this looks like something i would have seen in tropic thunder um in terms of the -the over-the-top nature of that violence and how unrealistic your body would blow up in that fashion from a landmine spike lee doing a vietnam war movie so (laughs) but your body would not blow up like that from a landmine where you lose all of your limbs i don't know that i'm not gonna say this is the most (laughs) accurate thing of all time but i i'm not you know i'm not thinking spike lee probably just decided I'm going to get rid of all this guy's limbs and who cares. I'm sure he had like some logic as far as that <laughs> I'm sure too. And you know what? There's another moment of over-the-top violence at the end of the movie uh, where a character gets shot more times than any other character I've ever seen, maybe outside of uh, Ben Stiller and Tropic Thunder, actually. <laughs> and oh, yeah. that was... when that happened, I thought to myself, okay, maybe there is some intentionality here at work and what I saw earlier wasn't um, like a tonal accident. You know, there is there is something going on here in terms of how Spike Lee wants to portray the level of violence. And then it all did to kind of start to um, settle in for me thematically what exactly he was going for. I think I mean, what's important to remember is that it this is playing in the genre sandbox, like beyond being like, you know, a, a serious look at the Vietnam War, and the impact it has on the veterans. It's also an action movie like and he's not like hiding that like he it's a heist caper thriller action movie and he's like he's he's having fun with those elements i I mean as much fun as you can say as far as you know getting shot in the head goes but i mean in terms of like the the adding that level that layer on top of like the more serious story going on i mean there's a subjective element in this obviously as well but i mean there is a kind of you know getting that momentum going in a certain kind of way by having big action sequence staging you know major battle moments or what have you yes there's some like 
deaths that occur that are ideally supposed to be more dramatic and you know yeah not all of them are like entirely success successful as far as the portrayal of them visually or how they're performed necessarily or what have you i get that i can i can see where that comes from i was also trying to figure out too if a landmine could do that to eddie then spoiler alert again i'm really really sorry why then when melvin jumps on a grenade does it's just it's like a poof yeah well, because he's not a Mine. It's not a landmine for one thing, and also it's it's the it's the way he's on it. Like he didn't yeah. step on it yeah, randomly; yeah. he covered the entire. He captured America. Sure, that's sure. the verb I use. Yeah, you disperse your body weight around the explosion. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. And which, although that was awful, because the whole time with that, I was also like, "Oh, come on! Like, don't, <laughs> well, that, don't, uh, don't jump on the land! Don't jump on the grenade! I, don't do I, that! You're gonna I, die!" I, I watched the movie twice, and it made me cry both times. I, it, oh. you know. Well, I, I actually liked um, character-wise for um, Melvin how much that fit into everything that we have seen him up to that point um, as being the one who's probably the most caring trying his hardest to be um like the one that brings the group back together when it feels like it's dissolving and just an all-around selfless guy you know i really that one hit me hard actually when that happened and it was definitely very uh sad uh for me at least yeah he was the most logical choice but nonetheless it really hit me yeah yeah Yeah. because you don't want any of the five bloods to die i mean in the no watching this and it's like and it's the one you know he's the more comical one is you know he got he got in a sheet moment and it was really funny that uh, sheet so. moment was so the laugh out loud moment of the movie to me yeah, holy so crap that was so funny that was me i was waiting the entire like when is he gonna do it <laughs> and he, and like, of course they found the right time uh, but he's up, you know, he sets it up earlier, right? He, you know, he, yeah. he, you know, he talks about the Fugazi Vietnam movies um, and, 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 and jumping on a grenade and then he's the one that has to do it. Uh, so we're at like well in spoiler territory now. <laughs> I mean, yeah. No, yeah, it's like I didn't intend for us to do a spoiler filled review, but I, I think it's actually appropriate probably because of the fact that the, I don't know how you talk about in details some of the stuff that Spike's getting at here without actually you know, going into it. So and it's th- that's OK. Movie released on Netflix during quarantine, like everybody's watching it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. If you're yeah. Who in God's name and also too, who in God's name is going to our podcast as like the barometer of, oh, should I watch this? No, let's find out what the next best picture podcast. Yeah. No, yeah, <laughs> you King is over. Let's watch. Yeah. This. Yeah. <laughs> um, so a couple of other things here I want to talk about in regards to um, like these tonal uh, moments within the movie. I really, really did, like I said, from the violence standpoint, that final standoff scene at the end where, like, this whole theme of these guys going back and for them, the war just has never fully ended and they find themselves, like, sucked back into the war again. I know some people have talked about, like, in the flashback scenes, how it is the uh, modern actors playing their younger selves without any de-aging or without any younger actors playing them. I, for all intents and purposes, whether it was for budgetary reasons or whatever, this is actually a choice that I really, really, really liked. I liked it too. And I thought it worked so well for the performances, the character work. I was all about this. I I kind of like had a weird moment. I was watching it. I was like, okay, so... Why are they doing this? And I I don't 
I don't think it worked quite as well for me as I I, I think it I wanted it to. It, just in the fact of like, okay, so what is what is he trying to say with this that they, that they haven't really changed that they never left except that a lot of what they're talking about um what they're talking about you know when they arrive and how their lives have happened like they have changed apparently but that but then he's also trying to say that they didn't change i just wasn't i think it i wasn't when it quite comes to the sure war, of what he was matter. trying to say with it but i i thought it I thought it was a choice. <laughs> I just questioned, and I liked the choice. I just questioned how effective it actually ended up being, at least for me. I think they, I mean, they change as far as, yeah, naturally you change just because you grow older, but as far as how the war is concerned. Their mindset. Their mindset know. as far in relation to Vietnam. And also, I mean, yeah, for one, yes. I mean, that's how you can justify it as far as there's a stylistic choice being made, but it also comes down to the obvious. It's like Spike Lee's not getting Martin Scorsese money to make this movie. Like he's not, <laughs> it's like he's Which no before pers- when we were talking about how when Spike Lee comes out with a new movie, it should be celebrated. I actually do view like a new Spike Lee film on the level of, oh, a new Martin Scorsese movie has come out. You know, it's like an event. Oh, yeah. um, and I do think he should be treated in that same vein, personally speaking. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. should yeah. is a big thing when it comes to movies though, right? <laughs> so it's like... It's, it's, and you know what? I think the final shot of the movie... Now... This was something I also maybe had a little trouble with. Uh, the movie for me felt like it had two moments where I thought it could have ended, but it kept on going. Uh, but the final, final moment of the photo of them together at the end um, in flashback mode, and it is a shot of them all younger. Yeah. That was the right choice, the right moment to show that image uh, because it was just an image. It wasn't something being played out for us uh, through flashback. And um, I, I, yeah, I, once again, like all these little decisions here and there, um, whether it was because they were trying to get around budgetary reasons or whatever it was, I thought that Spike used it to his advantage to tell a really, really, really powerful story. Well, I think that the picture at the end actually is a moment that shows you that it was an actual artistic decision, Mm because I think that all that we've been saying is that, you know, their mentalities were never the same, not just after the war, but I think also after this particular moment is why you get them as older actors in these flashbacks. And then once they sort of reconcile with their with everything that they've been dealing with and kind of forge ahead in this new changed future of what they want to do for themselves that's when you get kind of the moment of them back then as they actually were and seeing them as young men and different from the circumstances that they're in today and i think that that means that it's a very uh, obvious choice that spike lee is going for in those moments I just I do think that comes from necessity also. Like I, I, I agree with what you're saying, Josh. I mean that that makes complete sense to me as far as where this journey led them and what you can kind of see for yourself as opposed to like, you know, basically like a person's perspective of what happened in the past, where I mean there's a lot of ways to just like understand his stylish decisions. But then yeah, you I think you know, if you only have a certain way to do things, I get it as far as yeah, you sum it up with this picture as opposed to like recasting younger actors or doing any kind of elaborate thing. Yeah. It's like, okay, we can do it this way. And like that's the kind of you know, as a director, I think Spike Lee knows what he's doing in that regard. It's not like, you know, again, it's not like he just like threw his hands up in the air and said, Whatever. It's like, all right, we can't do this, we can't do that here. We can make this work and go you know, see how it shakes out. Yeah, I can understand it not working for everybody, but at yep. the same time, I do think there's an intention there that, as opposed to just kind of stopping. Oh, yeah. yeah, for me, that that photograph is the first 
I just say the first time I really felt the bond. Yeah, me too. So I I disagree a little bit, actually, because for as much as I found uh, the first act to be a bit of a slog to get through, I actually thought that their reunion uh, moments and um, the the camaraderie and the chemistry that the actors all had with each other, I thought really displayed that quite well, actually, in the first act. You're speaking of this slog and like you just talk about that camaraderie like that's the whole first act. I don't know. I understand. I just don't. Personally, I just don't feel that it needed to take 50 minutes for us to get there. Like the scene with Jonathan Majors and uh, Melanie uh, Thierry Mm -hmm. um, at the was it like a restaurant or something like that's that was when I found myself checking like my watch like, you know. Can we, we, we got, can we go, can we get to the jungle already? You know what I mean? It's literally right when they get to the jungle. (laughs) I know, I know. It was right there. I'm just saying. (laughs) I shouldn't have been looking at my watch, period. (laughs) Well, you know, I think that the beginning of this movie, the issues that I have is it just feels like we are introduced to so much right up front. And it did feel to me like we didn't get a ton of like setup for some of these characters. Like we are just, right in it. And a part of me appreciates it on just a level that I do like the performances and I like the chemistry between them and I can hang with the movie just for that. But I was missing a little bit of kind of context for some of these people. And I think especially for the Jonathan Majors character who just like randomly shows up and it was very awkward to me. It's like, I love you, Jonathan Majors, but I don't know who you are as a character. I don't really know what your relationship is with your father. Like I can infer some of it, but it just felt very awkward right up front. And I think the movie settles in more as you spend more time with these characters. But I do think that at the beginning, I did find myself frustrated a little bit with some of these introductions and not getting the fullest context that I wanted out of these situations and out of these characters right up front. Yeah, and the the relationship between Jonathan Majors and Delroy Lindo, the father son thing, um, <laughs> I I liked a lot of it, but then there were parts where it felt like Delroy Lindo's character was just sort of changing his feelings towards his son, kind of willy nilly. Well, you do notice that the moment that that happens is the moment that the first act of violence. Uh, happens in the jungle is where he completely snaps and all of a sudden now he's not being logical anymore and anything it is that he's saying and you don't even know if he really means half of what he's saying uh, like denouncing his son and things like that but the PTSD that they have clearly just established up to that point for uh, his character really really kicks in uh, you find the moment that uh, Eddie steps on that landmine. It, it like that's when Delroy Lindo's performance goes from it was yeah. probably at like an eight, but it goes then to like beyond a ten to like fifty at that point. That is absolutely <laughs> true. But even but 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 even before then, he keeps going back and forth on how close he feels to him and what's he want for him, and like no, you ain't getting shit. Like this is our money, and then like no, if my son's carrying a pack mule, he gets his whole share, and it just it. There, there, it didn't seem to be motivated in the script or performance in any way. And I I think it could have been. Um, it, it's strange to me that this movie is two and a half hours long, but it's only that long because there's a whole lot of plot happening and it is entirely dependent on the actors to do almost all the character work. Yeah. Um, 
and I I wish that there had been more character. I, I far be it for me to ever want a movie to be longer, but I wish that there had been more character moments, particularly in the flashback scenes. I because those flashback scenes are so good, and they only really come in for like the first half hour 45 minutes of the movie and then they kind of disappear until the end and i i for they're, one really they're a little more scattered more having like having seen it twice, they're a little more scattered more than, than that, that. They're, they're a little more scattered than that there's a little more flashbacks than just the first bit i, I agree i i i think that so i think here here's my here's where i i have my biggest problem of all with the movie is i do think that this movie is probably biting off a little bit more than it can chew and I think part of that is because it's an ensemble film. Multiple perspectives are being told. The story's being told through. We have Clark Peters um, as Otis, like on his own uh, story arc, reuniting with um, a Vietnamese woman um, who he had a daughter with. And we also have Delroy Lindo's uh, perspective of dealing with uh, the tragic uh, memory of his relationship with Norman and coming back to Vietnam. And we also have, you know, kind of quite honestly, outside of those two characters, then I don't I don't think there's any more personal perspectives like where I would say that I don't think anyone else gets as much focus as those two. I think David does. I, I think yeah, he is David the other does. one, yeah. uh, the Jonathan Majors character. I, but like I said before, it's sort of unfortunate that his introduction feels so awkward to me that it kind yeah. of, I, I felt some resistance into getting into that character's journey. I think eventually Majors' performance just becomes so undeniable that you are forced into uh, empathizing with him. But I do think that in terms of a writing perspective, that that character is not really given the best introduction to have the most emotional impact just from a writing perspective as the story goes on. I agree with everything you just said there, Josh. And um, you're right. You you are right. We do get scenes told from his perspective as well in that first act. Like I said, that scene with him uh, opposite from um, uh, the character uh, Hetty, uh, played by uh, Melanie Thierry. So you're right. And I do agree that it is a little bumpy at first, but then it all starts to kind of crystallize once again when they're in the jungle and it's just the five of them and the story feels a little bit more compact and tighter at that point because then it can really hone in on just the interaction between these five characters. And then we introduce uh, the characters like that uh, Jonathan Majors interacts with uh, back into the story, Melanie Thierry, Paul Walter Hauser, and Jasper uh, Pakonin. And... I personally, if you ask me, I felt that the movie could have done without this whole B subplot and those characters completely. Agreed, completely. Yeah. I mean, I love me some uh, Paul Walter Hauser, but it's not really relevant. Also, too, Paul Walter Hauser and Jasper uh, Pakonin, uh, Black Klansman reunion. Yes. <laughs> yes. In fact, for Jasper... He was so good as a horrible racist in Black Klansman that I kept waiting for him to say a racial slur in this movie. (laughs) I kept waiting for him to be a secret racist, and he wasn't. And I was, like, shocked by that because he did such a good job convincing me of that in Black Klansman. I really just didn't feel like their inclusion added anything thematically. Um, And I kept thinking to myself, you could have had the five bloods, find the gold, find Norman – still come into conflict with the Vietnamese that want the gold, 
getting help from their driver, uh, their guide, Vin, and then having the ambush at the end from, like, John Renault, and it's like, oh, like, okay, you know, even though we all knew clearly that he was, like, the villain of this movie, um, you could have had all of that, and the movie would have maybe shaved off in the process, say, 20 minutes? I don't know. I just, I, I, someone, someone, if anyone wants to make an argument right now as to what these three uh, white characters added to this movie, I'm all ears right now. I think the, the element of what they're doing there, which is they're trying, they, they're people that are working towards getting rid of landmines that are all scattered over the area. I think it, for one thing, it sets up the landmines as far as making that a, a major threat. It had, there's, you could say that there's like a potential love interest component, but it doesn't go anywhere. And I think it's wise that it doesn't try to make that a thing between Melanie Thierry and, and um, Jonathan Major's characters. Um, but I also think it inf- it helps inform Delroy Lindo, where you have outside perspectives looking at this guy and how he's reacting to them during the course of as things get you know worse uh, for all of them. I, I think if you just have him only with the fight with his with his other you know his other com, 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 compadres, um, <laughs> compadres, um, you you may not get the sense of like where he's going as well because they can understand him they can relate to him more he has a son with him like those are people that know him specifically but I think by adding that dynamic the film is able to challenge it more by giving him even more reason to revolt against something, even more reason to go off the rails and having people seeing that, that don't know him. But I was so confused though, because they help him save his son. And a minute after they help him save his son, he immediately mistrusts them. And it's like, dude, they all just helped you. That's his, that's his, that's his problem. He has PTSD. He has very clear, clear issues, especially coming, not just like in general, but being back in the place that got him that PTSD. And that's all well and fine. That's good. I mean, like, I don't care about the PTSD aspect because there's other ways to convey that still through his interaction with uh, the other characters. Once again, I just come back to what did these characters add to this story? Okay, so they're the organization that um, uh, Melanie Thierry's character runs is called Love Against Mines and Bombs, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And which is a, a silly name, but whatever. Um, and I think that that is the whole point of their inclusion is it's another way to look at the idea of the war never ending. There are these things that are left behind that are not just psychic scars, but actually physically there and can still damage people in physically and in very, you know, the uh, bloody violent ways. And I think that's the point of their inclusion. I did did the film need that? Maybe not. But well, she also, I, I got why they're in there. She also mentions how like her family was uh, a group that benefited from the conflict in Vietnam. So she has some kind of guilt about that and wanting to go back to the country and try to heal it in some way. Like there I'm not saying that there aren't certain themes that those characters and their inclusion in the story aren't working with. But I do agree with you, Matt, that I think that what they bring to the table seems so minimal in terms of the other themes that the movie's working with that it just feels like if you lost it, you wouldn't lose that much from the overall picture of what the movie wants to say. And instead you do kind of just end up bloating it a little bit more 
that when it's not really necessary. And I like those actors, but I don't think they bring up enough to kind of justify their inclusion into the story. Mm. I don't think it's about, I don't think it's just, I don't think it's worried about how much it just, they're supporting characters. They're not in it that much. I get as far, I, I don't disagree as far as if you could take them out, suddenly the movie gets, you know, a little leaner. Sure. But, it's not like the running time super padded out because of their inclusion. Like they're not, well, they're not, they're not, they're not factoring in too much while they are adding, like Dan, you mentioned, they're, they are adding to the narrative revolving around the Vietnam war and the kind of impact that it has. And even if you want to make this weird argument, like having Melanie Thierry around, it balances out the French side of the movie by having not just like a horrible Frenchman, but having someone on the sympathetic side as well. Uh, we haven't talked about Jean Renault at all of this movie so far. Um, <laughs> There's nothing to talk about. <laughs> but, well, I mean, I think there is because by the time you get to the end where he's running around white suit, big guy wearing a red hat, it's like, I understand why they cast Jean Renault in this movie. Oh yeah. <laughs> it was clear before, <laughs> but he put on the hat at that. I was like, "All right, <laughs> I see." Can we talk about the MAGA hat and uh, how it works into Delroy Lindo's uh, character? Because, my God, the scene where he's talking to himself, and then it quickly transitioned to he's now talking to the camera and breaking the fourth wall, and he's walking forward, so and this is all done good. in one shot. And he's talking about like how you couldn't kill me then, you cannot kill me now, right on. And he holds his fists up in the air. I don't know about you guys, I thought the movie was gonna end <laughs> right then and there, because I had goosebumps. I was so, so captivated by not just a performance from Delroy Lindo, but the character. And the character is so fascinating because of that hat and how it informs. I. I hear what you're saying as far as the hat. I don't give the hat that much power, but I do think it makes the character that much more intriguing by establishing right. that early on and, mm-hmm. and and continue. And what I like is that it, it gets out the digs like early as far as him, as far as the other guys making fun of him for being that involved, like Clark Peters pointing out the the, uh, the black man at the Trump rally and the, the Spike Lee cuts to the black guy at the Trump rally. But, uh, yeah, what I like is it gets those things out of the way and then it just kind of keeps going establishing what Paul is and like why it is that he why why he would justify it that that makes sense to him but it's really not it's not about it's not about Trump and I'm, I'm happy that film doesn't like go harder on it because I just get irritated to keep seeing the references and seeing yeah, <laughs> it bring, being brought up over and over again yeah having you don't want it to distract from the main narrative yeah having just a visual symbol of like oh he's wearing that red hat all the way through that's well something uh, yeah sorry for me, at least, it was uh, a trigger that, oh, my God, this guy's a little more complex than I thought he was going to be. Right. Sure. What is going on with him? And uh, it just drew me farther into it. And uh, yeah. with the quality of Lindo's performance, it even made it more complex, which I really liked. Agreed. Yeah, that, that's what it's really about to me is that it's not really about Trump, as we've said. It's more about this character who I think has just sort of abandoned any hope in any idealism of America because American idealism has abandoned the black community for, mm-hmm. for many, many generations. And I think that it adds that level of complexity to his disturbed mind that also feels a little justified. Like he is somebody that would kind of want to uh, relate to somebody like a Trump figure because it just is a representation of just blowing up 
the whole system. And it and Trump himself is a representation of years of unresolved trauma in this country. So it is a way to comment upon that and bring more complexity within his character without harping on it, which I would agree there's good jokes in the beginning, but if it did keep going at it, it would have gotten very tiresome very quickly. There's also, um, and and I haven't really said this uh, yet, but there is, I know I said the word like messy, uh, like Spike Lee has a tendency to make his films quote unquote messy, a little unfocused, but I do think that it aids in the discussion of his movies greatly. And there are multiple levels of interpretations that you can then give to his characters and his movies and their motivations. And there are uh, things that we can talk about then. And I think the Delroy Lindo character um, is one of the most fascinating creations uh, by Spike Lee um, in, a, in a Spike Lee film that I've seen in quite some time. You know, it's like that hat symbolizing make America great again. You know, you have to ask yourself, does that imply that he wishes that his life could be great before he went to Vietnam? Like, you know, in turn, like, does he does he does he wish for an ideal world where before all this shit happened to him and his life fundamentally changed forever? That's like one interpretation, just one. And it, it could be totally wrong. But the movie doesn't give straight answers to these questions, I don't think. And I, 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 I believe that that's what makes um, this particular film from him um, all the more great because uh, there's so much to read into. There, there, there can be, and there, there already have been, tons of essays uh, written about this movie, what it's trying to do thematically, the characters and what they represent, how it ties to today. And for all of its flaws and all of the things that you can say, oh, it's, you know, it could be tighter. They could have gotten rid of this. And yeah, um, I, I am admitting, you know, that I still believe that, yes, all these things could have been done and the same messages could have been p- put forward. Maybe that level of ambiguity lends itself to the movie and makes it better. I think any Spike Lee movie that's considered messy makes it more interesting down the line as far as re-watching, exactly. rewatching it because, yeah, there's mm-hmm. things you can focus on. Yeah. The next, I mean, a, watching a movie doesn't mean you watch it once, right? There's plenty of movies that are just packed with stuff that, yeah, you're just not going to get the whole time. That doesn't justify it necessarily in all cases. And I'm not saying this movie's perfect because it's messy. That doesn't make any sense. But I do think <laughs> just like any number of movies that I've watched where I've rewatched them, um, things, you know, that you may not have been super big on the first time or just had questions about, but, you know, wanted to focus on like the other elements, like the main, the plot drive or where this character was headed. You can question it the next time around. I do think that applies to a film like this where there is so much going on. It does have the expanded running time to fit a lot in, but I do think, you know, in subsequent rewatches in the years to come, you can kind of zero in more on certain things. You can zero more in on like Otis and his relationship with, with a Vietnamese woman and how that led to where his arc took him, like, which maybe you might not have been thinking about too much because you're concerned with the gold. Like, I think there's a lot of elements to, to consider as far as, Hey, I'm going to keep watching this and enjoying new aspects of it in years to come. As far as how that works for this movie and how it makes the characters complex by adding so much. Yeah. That's, that's the stuff. That's the stuff that I think really works for me here. That makes me have less concern about the qualms because I really enjoy that there's there is a lot packed in here. I like that I'm getting a lot of bang for my buck essentially. Like it, it, play, it plays out well to me. Yeah, it's entertaining. It's never boring, and there's a lot being thrown at you to think about. This is a this, this is a movie that we probably should have watched two or three more times. 
yeah. <laughs> before we hopped on this podcast, <laughs> if you ask me. But we have a schedule, and we uh, always record on Saturdays, so there you go. Another thing, too, I also want to bring up, uh, just on a technical level, I know we've kind of touched upon certain elements of this movie. Uh, I think this is a really, really, really good-looking oh, yeah. film from Spike Lee, mm-hmm. and i got to give a shout-out to Newton Thomas Siegel, the cinematographer. Yes. Yeah. And, and can I uh, have a shout out to Terrence Blanchard for his yeah. score? Oh my the God. score is so good. It's one mm-hmm. of those scores where I was like listening. I'm like, it, it, is this an original score or is this pre-existing music? <laughs> See, I'm actually going to disagree a little bit so about the score. Perfectly of that of that like old movie era in ways that like were sometimes a bit counterintuitive to the movie and in some ways really worked with it. And I was completely in love with what it was doing. And before I hear Josh's uh, retort there, I do want to say that to Dan's point, a common theme in the movie is what's old is new again. And I got that from the score as well. And a lot of times I will admit, I don't think Terrence Blanchard's uh, scores fit well with the story that Spike Lee is telling. I, I often find that it's distracting. Um, Inside Man for me is, is an example of that that comes to mind immediately. Uh, I thought it worked really well in Black Klansman. I think it works really, really well again here when you look at it through that lens that Dan just said. Josh? Um, I mean, you basically said what my issue with the score is. And I really feel like actually Black Klansman is the only time that I've ever really thought that a Terrence Blanchard score really fit that well with the Spike Lee movie. And I always feel like Terrence Blanchard creates beautiful music. He does. But it always feels to me like he writes the music independent of the movie and then they just slap it on. It's always been the one consistent complaint that I've had with Spike Lee's movies. And I kind of felt the same way here. It's not as bad as some of his other work with Spike Lee, but I still felt like there were moments when I'm just listening to the music and it sounds so overbearing in the moment too, when it should be this very quiet character moment. And it just really does pull me out. It, I, I, I understand that there's a lot of people that like the music, but I will admit that for me, this was an instance where it was kind of going back to my usual issues with how Lee uses uh, the Terrence Blanchard scores in his films. And it wasn't as effective to me. I was a fan. (laughs) I I enjoyed it. I enjoyed what he did here. Um, I think I think Blanchard works more than he doesn't. Uh, So, I mean, that's just that's where I'm coming from. And uh, I mean, off of that, the Martin, the Marvin Gaye songs throughout this movie, I think, are pretty wonderful as well. I was going to say, can we all agree Marvin Gaye, though? Come on. <laughs> that was especially the acapella yeah. uh, use of that of what's Oh, by Delroy Lindo? No, just well, no, they the, use the, the lack of just like his, his solo yeah, voice as vocal. Yeah. Known, known. Oh, OK. I see what you're yeah. saying. Oh, because the, the moment where Delroy Lindo is singing it uh, while he's digging, digging his own grave, I just thought was incredible. Yeah. Oh, uh, just just one more point I'd like to uh, put in is Lee's awareness of other movies that are about Vietnam that have come before him. Oh, yeah. OK. Uh, there is the wonderful shot early on of the four guys in the bar coming forward and you see the Apocalypse Now logo. Yeah. And mm-hmm. then it pulls back and you see Budweiser. underneath and you know that's very much what Ho Chi Minh City is now and uh, also even the ride of the Valkyries as they're going up in the uh, riverboat it's uh, yeah Mm -hmm. it's it really evokes Apocalypse Now and other films so I'm I I gotta say there's an uh, there's this 
there's a certain smartness about it that really works. Mm-hmm. I mean, it even goes to referencing other classic movies, too. I mean, there's a line in here that's basically from Treasure of the Sierra Madre. <laughs> a lot where are your official badges? We don't need no official stinking badges. I wrote that down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> which is an exclamation point for the movie to say we are basically doing a retelling of Treasures of the Sierra Madre, only putting black characters in it. And I think that that's also something that Spike Lee, I don't think gets enough credit for throughout his career, that he is somebody who loves movies and he loves classic movies Mm -hmm. and he references them all the time in his films. And sometimes it isn't quite as overt like other filmmakers do, but he deserves a lot of credit for that. And I think that this is a really great example of kind of, homaging previous movies but putting his own unique spin on it as well yeah because he doesn't he doesn't need to you know highlight and say guess what i saw this before like that's not this style like he he's a good filmmaker yeah. <laughs> like that's the difference between right he can he can throw things out there and yeah if you're going to reference apocalypse now bridge of the river Kwai, and um and uh treasures here madre three of my favorite movies i'm like yeah i'm I'm all in on, on what's going on <laughs> this thing like, this is such a like i was so sold from the get-go on this thing from the tra- just from the premise alone i'm like doing a heist movie in Vietnam, not like all of that just works for me already um and I mean, thinking of him like doing like this is coming after what Miracle and Saint Anna, which I was less fond of. I think like this is him like perfecting how he can do, you know, something set in this kind of era in a war environment and what have you. Like I think he really, he he really found a way to kind of hit what he wanted to hit from that kind of a cinematic reference point, as well as just telling this kind of story with black soldiers in the war. Something he has commented on before, as far as how other movies you know, kind of abandoned the aspect that there were, you know, black servicemen. Um, here, I think he really, you know, finds that groove as far as how to kind of tell a story centered around that idea. And then, you know, going back to uh, the theme of the movie itself, uh, you know, using that archival footage and so many historical moments to show how black people fight uh, the white man's war, but still mm-hmm. get no freedom. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I have to say, like, once again, um, it's chilling, you know, when you watch at the end of the film, um, the money uh, from Eddie going to like the, the Black Lives Matter movement. And I don't know how in God's name Spike manages to make his films just so urgent and so vital and relevant. But I guess the reason why is because the sad truth is that the war has just never ended, never ended for these guys. It hasn't ended for a single black person in this country, um, and it's still ongoing. And as long as Spike is free to make the movies he wants to make as an artist, he will keep on commenting on this theme as much as he possibly can to bring it to light and hopefully inspire people to uh, bring about change. And I really, really, in terms of his, like, vitalness as a filmmaker i i i cannot appreciate that more so i have to ask since we've gotten to the to the end of the movie and we talked about the the use of the picture of all of them in the from vietnam which was which was so good and powerful and made for such a great ending and it almost made me feel like the actual ending was tacked on within like the last couple weeks no nah, i mean i i, I just 
just because it felt a little disconnected from what the rest of the ending was doing. And it, it that flashes back to MLK before Vietnam. And I, I it's, get it's before he was assassinated. I, not before yeah. Before, Vietnam. He, before he was assassinated, which was before Vietnam. And I, yeah, it, I, or before Vietnam ended anyway. Yeah. Um, and I, I get why it's there, but it felt to me like a less powerful ending than ending with the characters of the movie. I don't know. It's like you ask yourself the question of like Black uh, Klansman, for example, and yeah. the uh, archival footage that he uses at the end that was so recent. So powerful. And how powerful that was. Yeah. Exactly. And... I don't know. Yeah, I'd like to get some more takes on this because I, I, I will admit, I said before, I felt like the movie could have ended two times before we got to that ending. And it did feel like they were not scrambling, but they were actively trying to tie up so many different loose ends with all these characters. They gave Clark Peters his moment. Um, the Seppo Havlin Foundation to remove landmines and bombs is set up. Um, and it, it, it just felt like it was trying to put a bow on so many different subplots very very quickly uh what did you guys think i mean it's not i mean it's tr it's trying because it's it's it needs to right i mean you have all these characters what do you, what's the other version of this you just say okay well that was that like and let's not wrap anything up i mean it has it's, it has to wrap up the characters that's 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 where i'm looking at it i mean it, yeah that's why i i i think like for maybe from a momentum standpoint it felt like the film was building 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 and then it climaxed. Then there is this denouement at the end of the film of, you know, wrapping everything up neatly. And I, I do agree with you, Aaron. What's like the other version of that? Um, and could it have been done better, et cetera? But I think it speaks to, once again, uh, how ambitious the movie is. And there is probably no right way to wrap it up and make it feel... Um, tidy and perfect I mean, uh I, i'll yeah. just say like i i do i i think the final 10 minutes of this movie are fantastic top to bottom like i have no i have no complaints here i i, I got mm. really emotional i got really emotional honestly looking at oh i cried movies. yeah i, I, I cried i, I, think I, I really, will admit it hits everything the way i think spike intended to do it whether or not it's perfect i i mean that just comes down to the eye of the beholder but i do i i it really registered with me the things he was doing and i mean you, you're you, Dan, you asked about the kind of adding, adding the um, the Black Lives Matter aspect, which is representing what I guess what Eddie wanted to do with the money. I do. I mean, it comes back to what the intentions were for each of these guys, given the you know the payout that they're going to get from that. And I can I can agree to an extent that, and I may, maybe that comes down again to how little defined Eddie seemed to be compared to the rest of the guys, as far as so his share went to this. I I still think there there was there is this kind of argument throughout the film as far as what we're supposed to do with the gold, right? As far as are we yeah. keeping it for ourselves and, or spreading it out to other people? And I think it and I to really the, like that. Yeah, and I I, that. I I do th I do think it speaks to kind of the reparations on the side of the black men that served and how you can best represent that and how do you best represent that in 2020? Well, you, you hand it to a movement that represents black people, and so I, that's the best I can say as far as how it justifies why you would include that. I don't think it feels. Because it's not like Black Lives Matter is new. I mean, it just yes, yeah. the time right now. I know you know that. I'm not. I'm not saying, <laughs> I, I, uh, but I mean, yes, the time right now, it's very timely because obviously. But at the same time, it's like, I mean, he, 
again, it's, you know, he play, it, it was planned out. Does the timing really, really, really work? Yeah, because shit happened again. But here we, it's it's the movie. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I agree with Aaron. Uh, Dan, I don't think that this was something that was tacked on at the last minute. No, I, but I'm not I'm not talking about like the end, the whole ending. I'm just the very very end the way that the movie ends with and this is what martin luther king said three days oh, oh. he was shot well i think that, that what that that felt like it was again another example of like imbalance like it didn't i didn't like ending the movie on that note like i get it but it it didn't it didn't feel like it fit with the rest of the ending mm. well i think that what that shows you is that um that there's still work to do i think yeah. that because once we get all these wrap ups, we see these characters in a better spot and that, you know, these movements are getting their money and with their donations. And it feels very happy. And I think that these characters earn their happiness throughout the story. But I think that final moment with Martin Luther King is also telling you that the story's not over, like the fight's not done. And, you know, there's still going to be forces out there within American society, in particular, that are going to still fight against it. And that's the thing that you still need to keep your eye on. Like we can celebrate the resolution for these characters and the good things that they're doing, but it doesn't end there either, that it still needs to keep going in the future. Especially given the speech that he's given. It's the one that, uh, as it says in the credits, a year before he was shot for, you know, for for, for, for daring yeah. to speak up, for daring to have these kinds of opinions. And it's a bookend. I mean, it opens with Martin with, with uh, Muhammad Ali also criticizing the war. I mean, it's mm-hmm. so it, there's there's a there's a a reasoning there there's a flow to it as far as that yeah okay i think we're up to uh final thoughts uh things that we have not mentioned that you want to quickly get out there or you want to reiterate um let's kick it over to tom first tom final thoughts on defy bloods i i think this is um a big spikely movie it's not to me at least on the level of do the right thing or black Klansman, but it's just below it and anything that uh, anything that uh, Spike Lee does that is at that level is something to really consider for awards. I, I hate to bring in awards for this, but um, it's it's a major film. Yeah, we're going to definitely dive into that in just a second here for sure, because there's a lot to talk about in regards to that. Um, OK, let's hear now from Josh. Yeah, this movie is is a lot. It is. And I want to make it clear that I think even when Spike Lee doesn't always hit it out the park, there is something about his movies that still resonates very deeply with me. And even when it is kind of disorganized and it doesn't feel like it's hitting all the notes that it needs to, I still walk away appreciating it a great deal. I think that that is still one of his gifts as a filmmaker. And I think this film is no different from that. Um, I do have issues with some of the way that it goes with some of the methods it uses to tell its story. And I think some of the characters could have used a little bit more work, but thematically it is still so interesting. And I still think that these performances are really great. And this is a movie that, I do imagine myself appreciating more on more viewings of it. There's a lot packed in here. And I think that that is, you know, that that's a feature, not a bug. And that's the beauty of Spike Lee and the the beauty of his stories. And so it's a movie that I, I think that he has stronger films in his overall filmography, but there's still something of incredible value here in terms of the story that it's telling of these 
characters within the framework of American history. And I still find that to be incredibly valuable. Yeah, absolutely. I, I definitely agree with that. And uh, the multiple viewings thing is something that um, I'll get to in just a second here as well. Dan? Um, I think that as a whole, this doesn't have the sort of energy and vibrancy that um, especially these last two films, Black Can Landsman and Chirac had, but it does when in that second half, when it sort of abandons his stylistic flourishes and really delves into these characters and their relationships with each other um, and within themselves, frankly, certainly in the case of Delroy Lindo's character is, is really, really strong. Um, I wish that he had found better ways to marry his stylistic flourishes with that kind of quieter, more character driven stuff, but it's, it's still a really, really strong movie, and for a movie to not once make me wonder about what time it was or how much longer was left during two and a half hours, that means it's doing something right. Yeah. Aaron? If we needed a reason to make this, by default, the best movie of the summer, let alone one of Netflix's best releases, I mean, here we are. I, I think the movie is, is a fantastic uh effort from spike lee who's just at the top of his game right now is it among his best like you know his in his top three not necessarily I, but I, I wouldn't go that far but i do think it it shows just how much he can do given you know the proper means to do so he can do so even without the proper means he's done that but here we are with you know a good size budget uh a, a great premise for what you know on the surface is a you know a caper action film but has so much more to say and he found a way to really do it. And I think he, <laughs> I, if he, if he keeps operating on this level, because I am a big, I am a big fan of Chirac and, and Black Klansman, and here he is doing this again. I, I look forward to him maintaining this kind of level of being a, a vital black filmmaker that has things to say and can do so in a very entertaining manner. Yeah. Definitely agreed. Uh, little bits and pieces here for final thoughts. Um, I love that the uh, four by three uh, aspect ratio for the past footage um, looks like archival footage itself mm, yeah. that matched um, a lot of the documentary and archival footage that was being used. Yep. Um, that was a really, really great choice that I really appreciated. Um, I thought the scene with the fisherman selling the chicken on the boat that triggers uh, Peter's uh, PTSD went on a little too long there. Mm. Mm. I actually love that scene, though. I thought uh, it was. I do yeah, like perfect, it. Actually, I, I do like it. I just thought it went on a little too long was all. But <laughs> yeah, um, but I did like I it three times. That's the first time I cried. <laughs> <laughs> the scene actually that got me emotional where I did cry was when they find Norman's uh, remains, uh, his gun and his dog tag. And they uh, say, you're going home, blood. Very quiet, yeah. stirring. Um, they joined his, their hands over his bones. Um, really great moment. And, and just a testament to the uh, acting from everybody involved there. I don't know what um, – um, I have this line written down. I don't remember what it's from, though, like what point in the movie. But I just have the line, I'm the motherfucker, uh, written down here. Um, so I want to just give a shout-out to that, whatever that is. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good line. But my favorite line in the movie, though, uh, I also have written down here, is when they are finding the gold and they're enjoying their excitement and he screams out, holy motherfucking mother of gold. <laughs> that was fantastic. Oh, I really, really loved that. Yeah, when they find it in the past, I think it's Isaiah. He says, uh, great googly moogly. And that made me laugh a little bit. 
And also, I want to give a shout out once again to um, Newton Thomas Siegel for uh, how they shot the forgiveness scene between Norman and Paul under the red leaves of the trees. That looked gorgeous. So, um, yeah, grade wise, I, on a first viewing, gave it a 7 out of 10. A strong 7 out of 10, I want to add. I agree with Josh that on a multiple viewing scale in terms of when I watch it again, because I haven't stopped thinking about it since I saw it. I I can definitely see my grade going up to an eight because I think that the reasons to go back and revisit the film and how much it has to offer um, lends itself uh, extremely well to uh, multiple viewings. And that's the hallmark of a great film, right? It makes you want to watch it again. So... I, I I will say my official grade is 7 out of 10. I reserve the right to say an 8 out of 10 at a later date. Uh, Aaron, what would be your grade out of 10? I, um, I watched the movie on Tuesday, and I wrote my review immediately after, and I was at an 8 at the time, and then by the time I finished writing my review, I was at a 9, because it just I kept thinking about everything that I was really admiring about the film and where my mind was going with it, how it was expanding off the things I already liked. And so, yeah, I'm at, I'm at a nine out of 10. I, I really enjoyed the film. Awesome. Dan? I am at a very solid eight out of 10. Cool. Tom? I also am an eight out of 10. It would, I, like you, Matt, I was initially a seven, but it's it's percolating in my head. And it's like, okay, if it does that, it's an eight. So I'll give it that. And Josh Parm? Uh, I am like in the exact same position as you, Matt. Um, I am at a very strong seven out of 10 right now. Um, but I do not doubt that if, if, and when, well, when I watch this movie again, that it will change for me because it has stayed with me. And despite some of the issues that I have had with it, there are things that have lingered in my mind since I've watched it. And that is still a mark of a really strong movie. So, I will just say seven for right now, but it definitely could change in the future. Yeah, I, I definitely think so as well. Okay, here we go. Oof. If if people didn't hate us before, they're probably going to hate us now at this point. Oscar <laughs> potential for Defy Bloods. This is a tricky question, I think, right now because of where we are. It is truly our first real Oscar contender officially, I think, of 2020. Uh, considering everything that has happened this year uh, with COVID-19, the lack of releases and such. And I think it makes it more difficult than ever to assess how this movie is going to be received. And I say this because what freaks me out about the ambiguity, about the quote unquote messiness of this film, um, the tonal shifts, everything that we talked about, right? I am supremely worried that everyone is going to use that as a quote unquote excuse to not give this movie its awards recognition. That's my worry. I do believe, based on initial reactions and when this film uh, first broke embargo, I do believe that uh, critics are going to push hard uh, for this movie to get um, the recognition from the Academy. And I think that the number one best thing uh, that it has going for it is Delroy Lindo. That performance is 
on the male side of things, um, because I, I there were some female performances I saw at Sundance that uh, I, I'm very, very fond of uh, that are still to come. But on the male side of things, um, I, I think Delroy Lindo has really, really positioned himself in a situation where his performance is, quote unquote, undeniable for awards recognition. Agreed. I, I just can't see how you would not have this performance in the conversation. Maybe he gets a nomination, maybe not. I don't know. But in terms of it being a contender, absolutely. I mean, it's the one performance this year that I think that like everybody, I can't imagine, even if you're not a big fan of this movie, that you can walk away and not say that Delroy Lindo is just amazing in it. And it's a movie that so many people are going to have the opportunity to see on a wide scale. And like you said, it's the first real major Oscar contender we have in any category so far. So I think that if for nothing else, yeah, the attention is really going to be on Delroy Lindo and getting him a nomination for this film. Yeah. The only thing I'm worried about is that there's so much talk about him going lead or supporting. And I'm just afraid it's going to split and he won't get either. I don't think that's going to happen. I think that wherever they choose to campaign him, they're going to get him in. The conversation will shift there by the yeah. time. Yeah. I yeah. hope so. That'd be great. Okay, so this is like a conversation I've been dying to have, lead versus supporting. Um, and, and Dan and I talked about this off air a lot because before we were trying I, to – before I had seen the movie, it must be. Right. We were trying to break down, like, when you have a performance in a movie, what constitutes lead, what constitutes supporting for you? And I say for you because I think that there is not a clear definition, and the line continuously gets blurred uh, by the studio that are doing the campaign to try and help help them get that nomination wherever they can. And this happens all the time with category fraud. Upon my first viewing, I initially thought he was supporting. And I say this because my feeling was the movie is told from multiple perspectives. Clark Peters uh, gets, I think, as much of a main perspective in this movie as Delroy Lindo does. And I and I thought to myself, this is an ensemble film with no clear defined lead. So would everybody just get campaign supporting, right? So that was my initial thought. <laughs> then I was talking to some people, and uh, Eric Anderson over at uh, Awards Watch, uh, he and I were chatting, and he said to me, sure, but, like, he gets a B side plot, uh, a character arc. He has, like, this extra focus, like, paid, uh, you know, put on him. And there's an argument that both him and Clark Peters are co-leads and everybody else is supporting. That's where I lie, actually. I actually think that i was totally on board of he is supporting in the movie and everyone is supporting in the movie because it's a true ensemble until he got those two massive monologues near the end that were entirely within his perspective and had no relation to anything else that was happening and just like handed him five to ten minutes of screen time that was just his and that was like okay no even if it is an ensemble he's the lead character of that ensemble and i think we could look back to something like the favorite as an example of this we had a lot of conversations around that time about the favorite and who was the lead who was supporting should they all go supporting should they all go lead etc etc right and in the end the studio did what they did 
I really do believe now, upon reflection, upon talking with people, like really just thinking about the movie, um, I really, and I, I don't know if anyone from Netflix is listening right now, but I think they should campaign Delroy Lindo lead. And this, oh, here's another thing too. I, I want to say, like, I, I've seen a lot of people say if they put him in supporting, it's disrespectful and it's um, racist and, you know, it's just diminishing, uh, you know, black people in general for getting in the lead category. Um, I, 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 I would, I, like, I, I, I'm not invalidating that argument necessarily. I know I, like, I understand that people want to see black actors get recognized in their rifle, uh, categories and not have it be like a consolation prize from a strategic standpoint, just so that they do get that nomination. But I, I do believe that it's not as black and white, uh, of a, uh, argument there. It's very gray and there are a lot of factors that go into it. I mean, Delroy Lindo gets a say. You know, when the campaign uh, comes to him and they ask him what he wants to do. So he he does get a say in the matter. I agree with you, Matt, as far as it not being black and white. There are a lot of factors. I think part of it comes down to do you want to win or do you want a campaign that's right? And I feel like if he goes supporting, <laughs> probably a bigger chance that he wins. If he yeah. goes for if they go for lead. I mean, I think that makes the most sense, but I do think it it limits the odds or whatever, however you want to phrase it. I, I, so it. Well, but also, too, does it, though? And I say this because, once again, we're in a very unique situation with this movie where there's a lack of competition across the board. Yeah, but it's June. I mean, like, <laughs> what, I mean what are you talking about? By the end of the year, you're going to have your Tom Hanks's and whatever is like doing all their things. And it's like. All right, like the standard crew is going to be here, uh, and I, I, I love to be optimistic and say, "Fuck it, Dorelindo, why not?" Like, let's see that happen. And Aaron, to your point there, that's another thing I want to caution people on. I want to caution people that this movie getting into things like best picture, director, screenplay, like sound categories, like everything, everything. Keep in mind, it is just June, and. Mm-hmm. I think it's healthy and perfectly okay to make these predictions now and say, yeah, I could see a world where Defy Bloods gets in uh, Spike again. I could see it getting a sound nomination. I could see it getting into editing. Like, I I could see all these things as of now. Who knows what's going to happen later when the competition becomes much more intense. And I want to see it get its recognition but i do think the timing of its release being in june it's earlier than what black Klansman was released at uh which was which came out in august yeah. uh two years ago netflix likes to spend money put it out i mean they're not going to forget their movie at the same time no. though i mean october you're going to have david fincher and gary oldman and mank about movie about making movies guess what the oscars like guess what netflix is probably going to put their money more into at that point so true it is true. Can't wait for Mank, by the way. I'm all about David Fincher movies, but still, I mean, I just I right. see that coming, honestly. Yeah. No, I, I don't disagree with the, you. The thing about The Five Bloods right now is it has the conversation all to itself. And so it has time to establish itself as a front runner if people continue to sing its praises for the next three, four months. Because let's be honest, we're not getting anything that screams Oscar contender uh, depending on when Warner Brothers finally decides they're going to release Tenet. Um, And even that is kind of shaky. (laughs) Well, you know. Um, (laughs) But and if it has enough time to establish itself as, if not a front runner for the win, then at least front runner for lots of nominations, 
those nominations can still happen because it becomes incumbent on every movie released after this to justify a nomination over this. My initial gut tells me that this is a Delroy Lindo nomination in the end, and that's it. That's what my gut tells me. However, however, it's early. There's still a lot to happen. Um, We don't know, once again, what movies are going to come out, what movies are not going to come out. It could pave the way for the movie to perform better than expected as a result. So I don't want to make any kind of official predictions, obviously. This is why we don't have predictions up on the website as of yet either. Um, I want to hold off until we get to at least September. You know, by like by that point, I think we should probably start having a better idea. I think Lindo is the obvious mm. one, and I think it could pull in, you know, some of the technicals. I think if it depending on it depends on other, you know, things that actually get released. But as of now, I mean, you can get a couple sound nominations out of there. You can even get a cinematography in there. Well, not a couple of sound nominations, just one sound oh, nomination yeah, now. Uh, I forgot <laughs> the thing that we talked about on the podcast weeks ago. <laughs> and I think you can get a score nomination. I could see that. Yeah. Josh, you're you're kind of like one of our uh, Oscar experts along these lines here. Um, what, what what are you thinking right now? I I mean, at this moment, I do see it as a Lindo or bust situation. I think it. You know, we're in so much unknown territory right now. We have no idea what the rest of the year is going to be like. We don't even know if the year is going to be open for the rest of the year. <laughs> so, you know, based on how I think that this is going to go. It seems like it's going to be a campaign squarely focused on him. He's going to be the priority. And then whatever else they can maybe get is going to be just gravy. But at the same time, it's this sort of feels like one of those situations where you have a director that made a movie that was really embraced by the Academy before. And then the next one, people are like, this isn't quite as kind of, crowd pleasing or it's not quite as like universally acclaimed it's not quite as not quite as contained and as we've said before it's a little bit more shaggy and i think that that might turn some people off from it outside of just appreciating the delroy lindo performance so at this moment i would say that they're probably gonna focus just on that that would be my assumption of what is in store for this movie's campaign yeah yeah, like I said before, I think that uh, the tightness of Black Klansman and how contained that story was and focused, I think, is something that is unfortunately going to be used as a measuring stick against the Five Bloods. Um, that's my prediction as well. And I think that, like I said, people will use it as an excuse to write it off as a contender for some of the above the line categories. Uh, yeah. But Delroy Lindo is just so undeniable. I, I, I just I can I cannot fathom how you would not recognize that performance at the end yeah. of the year. From the career aspect, he could, he, would have been, he could have been nominated for Malcolm X or Clockers back in the day also. He's like, he's been, get, and he's, you know, he's a welcome presence in movies. I do think that yeah. that will play a role as far as acknowledging this guy has been around for a while and he's very good in things. I, I yeah, think that, 67 yeah. years old, uh, Tony nominee. Uh, and I mean, like, yeah, you know, great career behind him. It it feels right. It's the right thing to do. And, and, two, and always do the right with, thing, Matt. That's what they say. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and you go. used to work with so many people and potential Oscar voters. Yes. Yeah. Agreed. Mm-hmm. All righty. Well, that'll do it here. Uh, for our discussion on Defy Bloods here on the Next Best Picture podcast, uh, a movie that I'm sure we will be revisiting uh, a lot of times throughout the rest of the award season race. Aaron, thank you so, so much for uh, being a guest here today for our review. Uh, tell everyone that's listening right now where they can find you on the internet. 
Well, thank you for having me for one thing. I was very happy to be here to discuss the film. But yes, um, you can find me hosting my own podcast with my friend Abe. It's called Out Now with Aaron and Abe. You can find it anywhere you can find podcasts. We talk about weekly movie releases, which is obviously <laughs> thriving and flourishing right now. But no, we have finally had a lot of fun talking about uh, various streaming releases and other fun topics. And I'm also writing at WeLiveEntertainment.com. I cover movies there. I cover Blu-rays at WiseToTheBlue.com. And I'm on Twitter at Aaron's PS4. Awesome. Thank you so much once again. Uh, Dan Baer, where can I find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at DancingDanOnFilm. Tom? I am at Twitter at Thomas E. O'Brien. And Josh Parham. And you can find me on Twitter at J.R. Parham. And you can find me at Next Best Picture. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to our review of The Five Bloods here on the Next Best Picture podcast. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Player FM, Acast, CastBox, also on Spotify. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you can get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening. As always, we shall see you all next time.